everybody please have a seat. Well, welcome to the White House. And I guess it is the blue and white house today because we're giving it up for the 2016 NCAA champion Villanova Wildcats. We have the best dressed man in college basketball, the George Clooney of coaches, Jay Wright. Coach Wright says in life, you can't control what happens to you, but you do control how you respond. Coach, I thank you for doing this. Just on you opening up and just letting us know who Jay Wright was <laughs> before all the success. I just thank you for allowing us to come all the way to Villanova. <laughs> you know, we love we love when the legend comes back to campus, man. So I'm glad to do this. We started this together, Randy. It took a guy like Randy Foy to be the first one to say, all right, if I'm going to make it as an NBA player, I'm going to make it doing it coach's way. And you were the first guy to do that. You, you love all your players the same, just like you do your children, but there's something unique about each one. And the one, what's unique about you is you were the first one to really start the trust between the coaches and the players. So Bucks County, Jay Wright. <laughs> <laughs> if you could take me back to 1970 in Bucks County, PA, wow. who was Jay Wright then? 1970 so I was like nine or ten years old man I was I was playing little league baseball my dad was my coach my dad was he coached us in baseball and football he was a northeast Philly guy you know tough guy from northeast Philly but I fell in love with basketball also and he never touched a basketball in his life and he would come watch me play and he would say uh you know, that's a sissy sport, man. You know, but when I grew up in our neighborhood, we played football and baseball, man. And the sissies played basketball. He couldn't teach me shooting or anything. He was always about the competitiveness, being a good team player. It was a cool way for me to choose my favorite sport in that I didn't have someone teaching me technique but talking to me about my attitude, my toughness, my unselfishness. He never sweats. He never sweats. I mean, it's like he's uh, cooler than the other side of the pillow. <laughs> <laughs> he's so cool, the priests go to him for confession. <laughs> I never seen you dance before, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've read. You didn't a lot see of me at any of these weddings or anything? I didn't see you in, in no weddings. You know? <laughs> I've read that a lot of your friends said you could dance like John Travolta. <laughs> John Travolta was the coolest. And the Bee Gees had all the music, and it was all the disco dance music. So that's what we did, man. And and, and I loved it, man. I, I loved it. And girls loved it. So for us at that time, it, we thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And then when I went to uh, Bucknell... You know, I was joining a fraternity there in our fraternity house. All the guys, they were football guys in our fraternity. They all liked Southern rock and everything. But I would bring the music from Philly, from Power 99 FM in Philly. <laughs> I would bring that music up there. And then late night, I'd, I'd turn on the dance music. But they loved it because all the girls would stay for the dance music. My mom and dad, in the 50s, there was a, it was called a jitterbug, you know, and it was a way you danced with your partner. And my mom and dad were awesome. They were awesome dancers, so I learned it from them watching them. I remember getting ready to commit to Seeing Hall with Tommy Amaker. And then I remember Tommy Amaker leaving and going to Michigan. And I remember Fred Hill just saying, hey, you know, Seeing Hall is Seeing Hall, that pirates, pirates, pirates. And then it just stopped. And so I'm like, did you get fired? Like, what happened? He's like, no, Tommy left. You know, it is what it is. So then two weeks later, he's like, oh, Jay Wright from Hoster. He's awesome. He's awesome. <laughs> this was a dream job for him. He was an assistant for a number of years. 
under Roly Massimino, became the head coach. I think I met you somewhere. I was playing like an AAU tournament. You just said hello. And I just was like, man, like the communication felt like it was there. Really? Yeah. And I was, I saw, always said to myself, that always stuck with me. Wow. That's a, I, you never said that to me before. That's, that's interesting. Jay Wright brought in this highly thought of recruiting class, most of them from the New York City area. When Tommy Amaker didn't take Freddie with him to Michigan, a lot of people in the basketball business were like, whoa, what's going on? But, we were young assistants together working camps. We always stayed friends. The same year that Tommy left to go to Michigan was the same year I came to Villanova. And I really think things happen for a reason in life. I think God's got a, a plan for all of us. And then he didn't say anything to me about you until we sat down at first meeting. He goes, you know what? We got a shot at a guy. It's a great player that I don't know if everybody knows how great this kid is. And we got a break. You know, and as I said, things happen for a reason. I, I never think that any of our success, getting you, winning the championship, it's it's not everything we did. It was it was part of God's plan. Like if if you remember that last summer before your senior year, mm -hmm. you decided to go to summer school so you had all your grades in order mm -hmm. and didn't go play national. And you went to the ABCD camp and you didn't miss class. Yeah. So you went to classes, so everybody didn't get to see you during the day. You would come in at and night. I was, I was sick. Yes. I was sick my, um, going into that. You had pneumonia. Yeah. And so I, I basically went for two days, and then I left. Yeah. And that's how that's a great story because Noah was working on a story of the life with ESPN, and they were going to do a story on me at the camp, but I got sick, and I couldn't do the Is story. Is that right? So I think you end up like following like LeBron, Sebastian Telfair. Yeah. A kid named LeBron. People yeah. were like, yeah, he's pretty good. I'll be a junior. <laughs> But you took me home. He drove me home, and I, I asked him. I said, "You know, my family's in in trouble financially." And I asked him. I said, "How much does a a second round make?" Because I was thinking about Is leaving right? from high school to go to the NBA. Like I was everywhere. Wow. And he was like, "If you're thinking about what a second round pick make, you should just go to college." Is that right? He he asked he asked me, and I the weight of it just I felt it. Because who the yeah. hell am I to, to answer that question? Yeah, yeah. I don't think we said much from Fairleigh Dickinson to his house. And we pull up to his house and he's asking me this. And I, 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 it felt like five minutes of silence to me. Uh -huh. But then I just said, if, please, if you're asking me this, go to college. I was just, I was so stuck because everybody was leaving out of high school. Everybody was like, oh, if you leave, you won't be a first round pick, but you'll be a second. You can make at least a half a million dollars. And I was like, yeah, man, I'm half a million dollars. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do that. It's true. And then I just was asking around. I know he worked with ESPN. Me thinking now, I'm thinking that someone from ESPN would know exactly what goes on in the general manager. Think about how line. naive you yeah, are in high school. Exactly. And then think about, take that thought process, and then three years of college, and after your junior year, you could have left and you said to me, I'll never forget, I was prepared to tell you, you know, you got family you got to take care of. You're, you're ready. You're, you're good enough. You, you, you got to do this. You got to go. And I didn't even get the words out. You came in and said, Coach, I'm staying. You know, yeah. I, I, this is my family, and I'm not ready to leave yet, and I want to get my degree. And I was like, I was the happiest guy in the world for two reasons. I was getting a great player back. But I, like, I never heard you say that before about that you were thinking about going as a second-round pick. But I realized here's a kid from Newark who really didn't have – a lot of motivation for education when you come in and now you're saying I want to get my degree I just felt like you're in a great spot for life now like you, you knew you had your family here you had confidence in yourself as a player that whether you came out then or played again that next year you're gonna make it it was all about work ethic I never had work ethic and 
the um, classroom. And when I got here, the tutoring, the summer school, it was great for me because I got ahead in class. And when yeah. the season came around, I was able to just play basketball, worry about basketball. Yeah. Like you had classes, but it wasn't overwhelming. Villanova have a 100% graduation rate since yep. you've been here. Yep. And I think that's one of the, the coolest things. You're coming from Newark East Side, you know, a tough inner city school. You didn't have good discipline academically. You had what we call intrinsic intelligence. That means you were born with intelligence, but no one got you to really translate that into academic intelligence. Then you got here, and you remember how scared you were? Man. First speech you had to make in a that's class? That's intimidating. That, that first time standing up. Just imagine you being in class with 12 African-Americans, eight Hispanic kids, and you the man. So you could say whatever and everybody's yeah. going to laugh. But I'm sitting here. I'm the only African-American kid in the class, and everybody else is white. And, and everybody just, else has got like 1,300, 1,400 <laughs> SATs. That's like more pressure than I ever felt in a basketball game. Were you afraid that people were going to make fun of you? Is that what you were worried about? I can just tell. Like every word that was coming out of my mouth, I just was making sure I didn't sound like I was from the inner cities where I grew up in the ghetto. So I just was... You were in your head. In my head. Which is yeah. interesting that you went to a school that I know that the idea of overthinking sometimes is dangerous. It's I, I, I can't... No, I can't explain probably clearly enough that the biggest challenge for a guy here at Villanova is you get into a classroom here, these kids are competitive as, as the hell. They're so smart, and it's so intimidating. And I knew that that was going to be difficult for Randy, and the guys on the team were busting his chops because he was sweating so much and, yeah. and, and uh, when he was speaking. And then I always remembered we went to the Wooden Awards in L.A., and they would have a big dinner for like a 1,000 people, and they would have the five finalists sit up on the stage. You remember this? Yeah, I remember. And it was uh, J.J. Redick. Um, Brandon Roy. Brandon Roy. It was Adam Morrison. Adam Morrison. Sheldon Williams. Sheldon Williams and you. Mm -hmm. And he would ask questions. And the coaches of these players were sitting behind them at the dais. And Randy was the most articulate, intelligent guy by far. And I'm sitting back there thinking, this kid four years ago was sweating. And now look at him. I was sitting there. I had tears in my eyes, man. I was tearing up. I really take as much pride in that as I do your great basketball career. Jay Bones <laughs> at Bucknell. It was Jay Bones more of um, you crossing people up on the basketball court? <laughs> Who was Jay Bones at Bucknell University? I was crazy in college, man. I I, I used to tell you guys that. That's why I'm on top of you guys all the time. I, oh boy! You used to I, always say everything you did. I did it longer and better. <laughs> and all the trouble you got in, I was worse, and that's why I'm not letting you guys make the same mistakes. You know, I came from here and, you know, just outside of Philly, but I was more of a Philly guy, and I got up there in the middle of nowhere at Bucknell, and I had never seen anything. I never, I didn't, I didn't, I never left Philly. I didn't know what a fraternity was. I didn't know. I got up there, and I just went wild. Like, it was just, there was so much fun to be had. The guys in the fraternity, they just nicknamed me J-Bones. I don't know why. It was just J-Bones. And uh, <laughs> they, <laughs> I would go out the night before games back then. I would. I, I had a thing in my mind that. So that's why you guys used to check bids. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I had this thing in my mind like as long as I slept eight hours, if I came in at four in the morning and I slept till 12 noon, I was fine. How about this one, Rand? How about when Randy's freshman year, we didn't stay in hotel rooms on home games. We, we let them stay in their dorms. We had a great recruiting class. We were 5-0. and We started the Big East 5-0, and, and they were all freshmen. We were nationally ranked. 
and West Virginia came in to play a 12 noon game, and they waxed us at 12 noon. And the next day, social media was just start. It was yeah. like it was message boards were yeah. just starting, and guys were saying, "We saw Randy Foy out the night before. He was out, and Curtis Sumter was out." And I, you know, I was like, "I knew these guys. I, they wouldn't be out the night before a game." But long story short, you know, I asked those guys. Randy was like, "I wouldn't coach. I wouldn't go out the night before a game." And I believed them. So we started to say, you know what, we got to put these guys in a hotel room for two reasons. Make sure they don't go out, which I don't think they are. But number two, if this is what it's going to be every time, we need to be able to tell people we know where they are. You know, we got them. So since then, we've always stayed in hotel rooms the night before home games. Did you go out that night, Randy? I didn't. Like, I swear to this day. <laughs> no, he like, would. Like, he I swear would. to this day, I, I didn't go out. But, man, that was a big story. That was a day. big story. I didn't understand how big it was. I was like, oh, whatever. But just me being naive, I'm like, man, I'm from Newark. People go out. And probably get shot the yeah. night before the game and come and still play. But I was like, I didn't go out, so I didn't have anything to worry about. You graduate from Bucknell. So what was your first job? Like, what was your feelings going into the real world? My mom and dad didn't go to college. I was the first person in my family to go to college. So when I went there, I told them I was getting C's because it was really hard. They were like, hey, good, you're getting C's. You're fine. You pass. That's cool. And even when I graduated, they were just so happy I graduated. I thought I was going to play in the NBA. I always remember that when I coach our guys, that I was so unrealistic, but it doesn't matter. In my mind, I thought I could play with anybody. So I remember going up to uh, St. Peter's College, and they had this tryout for European teams that were coming in. And I'm playing against guys, man, like 30 years old, 20 years, and they were studs, man. I'm like, holy shit, this is – I think I'm going to go – these guys, these aren't even – I think I can play against NBA guys. I never told anybody this, but I knew then, like, I'm not an NBA player, and I got to be even better to be a really good player in Europe. So I came back from there knowing in my mind, like, this, this ain't happening. So I came back. I was working construction that summer, and I was going to go to Drexel University to get my MBA and be a graduate assistant basketball coach. Towards the end of the summer, I'm like, there's no way I'm going back to school. So I just said, I got to get a job. I just looked in the papers and the one ads and the Philadelphia Stars were advertising my job. I went, interviewed, I got the job selling season tickets. I worked hard and they gave me more responsibility. I met Patty there, first day of work, I met my wife. It was an awesome experience for me. I got into marketing and things like that. I, I loved it. I heard more stories about Speedy Claxton at Hofstra when you first got here. That's funny you say that. I've heard you say that before. I didn't realize that. Yeah, I would hear more stories about him. And like, how what he, would I say about Speedy Claxton? That he would eat me up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think I had a couple of days where I was homesick. I just remember you explained it to me in the office before saying, hey, you know, this happens. But when you get on that 94 by 50, like, you better be a you-know-what. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, yeah. And I think I, I let it carry over into practice. And you kill me. And you were just saying, like, Speedy was here. And I remember you made me stand at half court and you made other guys run. And you was like, get it together. I know my teammates looking at me like, come on, man. <laughs> I wasn't used to being outside of the city or at least yeah. living. It was like three months I was, like, living in Pennsylvania. And I just was homesick. Looking back now, I don't know for what. But <laughs> <laughs> was there days like that early on at Hofstra where you just felt as though, hey, this is not working. Things yeah, are not man. going our way. Oh, man. Uh, we had a losing record our first four years. In our first year at Hofstra, I remember Coach Massimino came to watch us play, and Brett Gunning was our assistant, and we got blown out at home against Dartmouth. And Brett drove Coach Mass to the airport, and Coach Mass said, does he know what he's doing? <laughs> and Brett told me that. 
And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I know I got a lot to learn. And my mentor is saying, I, I look yeah. bad. Do I know what I'm doing? Those early years at Hofstra were, were really tough. You never let anybody know that, you know, that you're struggling because you're the leader. You got to gotta show you're in charge. But I was worried. In my first year, I thought I would come in and do all the things Coach Massimino did, and it wasn't working. We did play hard, right? And we were losing games, but I knew these guys, they're not good enough, you know? Like, we took over a team that was 295 out of 302 Division One teams the year before. I knew these guys were giving me everything they had, so I'm thinking, I can't kill these guys, you know? And that's why I started to develop that about playing hard, playing together. Like, they're doing this. So let's take pride in what we can do and what we can control, mm -hmm. right? I'll never forget, we were recruiting, going into our fourth year, and we did a home visit with a guy, and his mom says, well, a coach from your league was in here, and he said that you guys are going to get fired. Like, do you think you're going to be there next year? And, um, you know, I acted cool. I was like, no, um, you know, we'll be fine. You know, we have great support there. And, you know, sometimes that's just what coaches say in recruiting. That's not true. We came out of there, and I said to my assistant, Tom Cor, I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? This dude went in there and said we're getting fired. And Tom Cor goes, we might get fired. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, and I never even thought about it. I go, you think so? He's like, Jay, we've been here three years, man. We haven't won. We're going into our fourth year. And I never thought about it. I just kept thinking like, you know, we're creating this environment. We're creating this culture. We've got great attitudes. We're playing hard. And I never really feared failure. I, I knew things weren't going well, but I, th I always thought, hey, we're, we're doing it the best we can, you know. And, and that fourth year, we didn't win again. And the fifth year we went to NIT. So Olga's Lounge in New Jersey. Olga's Diner. I said wow. Olga's Lounge. Wow, man. Neither, you did some great research. Yeah, here, you wouldn't be here or I wouldn't be here. That's right, man. So what happened there? So I was in our seventh year at Hofstra, and we had a couple good years. At that time, University of Tennessee, Rutgers, and UMass, jobs were open. Now, it's really wild. And Wisconsin, and I was talking to those schools, and Villanova wasn't open. Steve Lapis was here. He was doing fine. And Bob Mulcahy, he was the AD at Rutgers. He was a Villanova grad, so I knew him from Villanova. So one night, came over, met him at his house, put together a plan. I'm going to be the next head coach at Rutgers. And um, I said to him, I just need to meet the president because back then you could take Prop 48s in, but I wanted to make sure if we took them in, the president would give us academic support to help those guys. So I said, I just need assurance from the president that we can bring these guys in and that he'll give us support to get these guys academically help in the first year so they can make it. So we set up a meeting on Sunday to meet with the president because they were having a banquet, an all-sports banquet. That was Wednesday. On Friday, Steve Lapis takes the UMass job, which was unheard of. Now, I was interviewing for UMass job at the time, and I talked to Steve Lapis on Thursday. Steve said, you, you're going to take the UMass job? I'm like, I don't know, man. He oh, goes, how much man. do they pay? I go, They're paying 600000 He goes, 600000 Really? I'm like, yeah. So on Friday, I call the guy at UMass, and I say, Mr. Markham, I apologize, but I don't want to waste your time. I'm not going to take the UMass job. And he was fine. He was like, he all already right. knew. <laughs> but he told me I was just – and I'm like, Wow. That was really easy. He wasn't really disappointed. It turns out he was with Steve Lapis at the time, but I didn't know. So Friday afternoon, they announced Steve Lapis has taken the UMass job. And so everybody's in shock. Saturday morning, the president of Villanova calls me and says, will you take the Villanova job? I said, well, I, you know, I, yeah. I said, yeah. He goes, well, I'm going to Rome, so you work it out with our AD. So we met with the AD at Olga's Diner. 
That's Nicastro, Vince, right? Vince Nicastro yeah. and Dottie Malloy on Sunday morning in South Jersey. And you're supposed to go to I'm Rutgers. I'm supposed to go later. to Rutgers. So back then, everybody didn't have cell phones back then. I'm trying to get the AD to call him like, I'm not coming to the meeting. I can't get him. So I drive up to Rutgers. I wanted to tell him face to face. I didn't want to leave him hanging. And when I get there, he says, Jay, I brought Greg Shiano, who went to Bucknell. He's mm -hmm. the football. Greg wants to talk to you. And I'm like, no, Bob, I, I need to talk to you first. He's like, no, 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 talk to Greg. I'm like, Bob, I need to talk to you. you? <laughs> so he's like, no. So I go into this room with Greg Shiano. And now the president is now with the AD. I tell Greg, Greg, I'm taking the Villanova job. He's like, what? He goes, can I talk you out of it? I said, no. He said, look, just sit in this room with me for 10, 15 minutes. Let's talk about Bucknell. So they think I try to talk you out of it. So he comes out. I go in now with the president and the AD, and I got to say, I'm taking the Villanova job. So Steve Labis, he took the job in 01, right? Yeah, 01. I just want to tell um, Steve Labis, we appreciate him. <laughs> <laughs> it was a break of a lifetime for me. It really was. Throughout that whole story, all these great things are happening to you, and it seems like you're very much concerned and aware to make sure that you do the right thing as far as telling someone about the job or being up front face-to-face. -face. Was that something your parents taught you, or where did that come from? Uh, my parents definitely taught me that. that. That's one of the things I said to you about my dad. He was a blue-collar guy, Northeast Philly, good Christian guy, and everything with him was just about just, just be a good person, just do the right thing. And not that I was a saint, you know, but still I'm not, but... It was simple with us growing up. You just do the right thing, and if you don't, you're going to get punished. I should talk to you guys about right Randy. Just, just be legit. You don't have to be perfect. Just do the right thing. And if you make a mistake, take the responsibility for it, learn from it, and move on. So the name of our podcast is Outside Shot. So I just look at myself as being resilient. Whenever I'm faced with any type of adversity, I'm going to face it and... Whatever happens, happens, and I'm going to deal with it. When you recruit, do you look for kids who are resilient on the court, or can you even tell that someone is resilient just from the way they play on the court? Yeah, we do look for guys like that. I just think it's so rare. We use you as an example with our guys all the time. I've watched this through your career. I've watched situations where I thought, I know I'm biased, but I thought you were better than someone that was playing in front of you. I never heard you complain. Never heard you blame it on anybody else. And anytime I talk to you, you just say, like, hey, I got to work harder. I got to stay ready. And I always look for how do they handle difficult situations? What is their response? What is their parents' response? Like, if I hear a parent say, you know, he's doing good, but you know what? His coach really doesn't use him the right way. Then right away I'm thinking, I don't care that they're criticizing the coach because we all get criticized. What I care about is they're using the coach as the excuse for their son not being the best he can be. So right away you see – all right, you're going to be dealing with someone that's not taking responsibility themselves. And then we got to determine, can we teach that guy? Right? Can we teach him to take responsibility? So it's, it's, it's really difficult in recruiting. We have been blessed, and it, it started with you. You really took responsibility for Kyle Lowry. You, you taught Kyle Lowry. There's a lot of times I, we were having a tough time handling him, and you would say to me, Coach, I got him. I got him. And he looked up to you so much that you would tell him sometimes, hey, coach is right, man. He's trying to teach you how to be a man. This is how you should handle this situation. And he would listen to you. And I know deep down inside, like he's still a player and he still competes, yeah. but I know he is very appreciative of how you taught him. 
shots, you know, we got back in the game. That's what impressed me. I remember we just finished the senior year, and he was projected to be a, um, a first-round pick, and I was projected to be a lottery pick, and we drove together to Newark. My grandmother, she needed something. I had to give her something, and I was like, hey, you want to drive with me? He was like, yeah. So he jumped in the car, we went, and I remember we caught Rudy Gay on the ride up. And then he was asking Rudy, we was on a, basically on speakerphone, he's like, Rudy, what are you going to do? And Rudy was like, man, I'm gone. Because they both were sophomores. I was automatically right, right. going to leave. Rudy was like, I'm out of here. Right. And then Cal was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. He was like, I want to go. He's like, everyone's telling me I'm going to be a first-round pick. But Villanova, he was like, from where I have came to where I'm at now, he was wow. like, I'm a different person. And he was like, I feel as though one more year I could be a top-ten pick. But then the he said, Coach Wright saying, I got to go. <laughs> <laughs> he said, Coach Wright saying, I'm too much. Well, and him. he was saying that, he's like, Randy, you're not going to be here? Wow. And I remember us sitting there and we just talking this about it. good stuff for me to hear. Yeah, we sitting there talking about it. And then, like you said, just was, he was like, he was a lot at the time. You know, yeah, I, remember, I remember us being in class. Cal was in the front of the class, like you told us. Right. But he, he's on his PSP. And I'm yeah. like, man, this is this dude is crazy. <laughs> like to myself, I was like, I wouldn't even do that. And he's like sitting there playing his PSP with headphones on. And the professor oh. like talked to us afterwards. And the only thing Cal said to me, like, oh, I won't do it again, professor. But he says to me, please don't tell coach like that to me. <laughs> and I was like, well, he's about to tell him. So you in trouble either way. <laughs> you were great for him. In the 2006 NBA draft, Randy Foy from Villanova University. The 24th Memphis Grizzlies select Kyle Lowry of Villanova University. It's so funny that you see, I'm learning stuff from you where I didn't know Kyle really took that from me. But I, the, my point to Kyle was, if you remember at that time, you know, you were a 6'4 guard. You coming back, you could improve your lot. But Kyle at like 6'1, I said to him, they, they like you right now. They're going to take you in the first round. You could be a 6'1 guard and come back and have a good year and go lower because they don't like little guards. Yeah. Plus, I said, you've been here for two years. You've got in no trouble. We know what you're capable of. <laughs> and you could come back next year and do something crazy yeah. and hurt yourself in the draft. His famous line to me was, I'm better than any guard you have, but you won't start me because they're your boys. Randy Foy, Alan Ray, Mike Nardi are your boys. That's the only reason you won't start me. I said, you know what? You're right. They are my boys. And whether you're better than them or not, I don't know. But as Villanova basketball players, they know what they're doing, and they're better than you. So if you prove to me you're better than them, I'll start you. And he got in the starting lineup, man. He, he proved it. What was really cool is I'm telling you, if not for Randy Foy, I couldn't handle Kyle by myself. No drinking, no drugs, no, no nothing bad, just defiance of authority. That was his thing, man. But he had a good heart. I knew he had a good heart, and he respected Randy, right? He it was always like, all right, Rand, we we got an issue right here. Like I I talked to him. I don't know if this is going. You got to take him, and you would say, okay, coach, I got him, and he would listen to you. And I I know that means the world to him. To this, and today, he's an amazing guy, man. Great father, great husband, great businessman. I, I'm so proud of him. But I'm telling you, in the Difficult years, Randy. You were the you were the difference. Every time I go into Toronto, he come into the city we were at. We always try to link up and go out to dinner. People look at us now and they say, "Oh, you guys made millions and millions of dollars," but um, me and his relationship is still the same, which I think is, awesome. is super cool. 
And I still think when I watch Kyle, if not for Randy Foy, like we helped him, but Randy Foy helped him. I helped mentor a guy that mentored a guy that's an NBA All-Star. That's the greatest thing for me. I don't know if I have a great way to explain this yet, but when people ask me, like, what, what do you enjoy about coaching? Like, what, do you, what are you most proud of? Like, like that stuff, you know, that relationship between you. When I see you guys on the road, taking pictures, sending it back, and I know you guys are connected, and I know the respect you have for one another. I know the pride you take in Villanova. And I know that I have a small part in the relationship you have. That's the greatest thing. On those days when you guys send me those pictures, I sit it. I'm, I'm tearing up now. I sit at my desk. I tear up. I, I like that's. I haven't found a great way to explain that yet, but that's what I love about coaching college the most. Does winning a national championship, does it make it easier for you or harder? The coaching part, in a way, is, is harder because our goal is not to win national championships. Our goal is to be the best team we can be by the end of the season every year. Our goal is for each player to be the best student, the best man, the best player he can be. Staying to our core values. When everybody else is just, you got to win another national championship. That's hard. I, I remember because, you know, the town that, that I live in, it's all Villanova people. Yeah. I can remember people coming up to me and just being like, as an alumni, like, we're pissed. Like, we like we did this and we did that. This was before winning the national championship last year in 16. But they're like, we're pissed. And I'll be like, you guys don't get the big picture. Like, the big picture isn't winning a national championship every year. So this is a team for the ages. Their grades ranked in the top 10% nationally. In fact, ever since the 1970s, the Wildcats have graduated every four-year player. And that's the kind of record that you really want. When I talk to him, they don't understand it. But then when you won a national championship, oh, he's so great. He's this and he's that. <laughs> and I'm just saying to myself, like, this is what you call a bandwagon fan. Exactly. <laughs> so the word attitude is on the book that you just released. Where did that come into play? I know it's everywhere. When I was a uh, assistant here at Villanova, John Chaney was the head coach at Temple. I always admired John Chaney for a number of reasons. Philly guy and tough guy, and I loved his discipline with his team. And uh, he used to have billboards up that said, winning is an attitude. attitude, is attitude is never in. I always liked that. I always liked winning is an attitude, right? And when I started at Hofstra, we weren't winning, but they were tough. They'd battle. They'd scrap. They'd give me everything they got. I used to think, like, all right. They got a great attitude, man. They bring it every day. We'd get our butts kicked. They'd come back the next day and practice. You know how I was when I was younger. I'd be yeah. killing them. They'd respond. And I'm like, we got a great attitude here, man. So I started to realize, like, we can't affect winning and losing. We, we're not good enough. 
but we can affect what our attitude is every day. And, then, and that's when it came to me. I said, you know what? This is going to be my mantra for myself as a coach. You know, everybody hates losing, but I'm going to bring a great attitude every day. And these kids are doing it, so that's what we can control. And you just explained it, Randy. No matter how much success you have, one failure losing that game to Wisconsin is going to bring everybody's negativity. And so you come in that next day to work. How are you coming in? Oh, I'm bummed out. We lost to Wisconsin. No, man, I'm coming in like, yo, let's go next day. We're fired. We, we got to deal with it, and we got to get better. And that, that's our attitude. And that, that's the way we've tried to live our lives, and that's the way we want our program to be, and that's the way you've lived your life, and that's what we want our guys to learn. Do your players, do the students understand that they're being taught something that is really not a basketball lesson while they're in school, or does it take when you leave, Randy? I think it's more when you leave. When I was here, I knew attitude when we were playing. I had a lot of days where, I, you know, I felt bad, but I knew when I got on that court, my attitude needed to be a certain way because I was one of the leaders. And Coach, he gave me that opportunity from the beginning to be a leader because as soon as I came in, he started me right away. And in the beginning, I wasn't ready for it. But then as I learned, as I continued to work, I understood exactly what he's doing. And just to put it in play now, when you have your own kids, you know, it's some days where they test you. Talking to your teammates, I think you do a great job of that. A lot of times I do it because I don't want to run in practice. <laughs> and a lot of times it's more of an approach well, we where talk to them first. It's attitude. And I, and I always look back and everything happens for a reason, especially with my life. I just look at, like, Coach Wright coming here and just that slogan, wherever we go on the road. And I remember playing the Knicks this year, and I was laying down, and I looked up, and I saw a piece of tape on the door, and it said attitude. <laughs> and I knew exactly where that came from. <laughs> Just taking it full circle back to the beginning, attitude has always been a part of me, and I didn't even know it until I got here. You hit on two great things there where when guys come in here, they're basketball players. So we try to teach them an attitude that they have to have on the court because that's what they care about. If you're going to do that to that guy, you can do it. You have to have a next play attitude that whatever happens on the next play, i got to have a clear head. Greatest example in the world is in the national championship game, 4.7 seconds. Nobody came off the court complaining or being mad at each other. They came off the court saying, attitude, attitude. Every guy on the bench, every guy on the court looking at each other, clapping their hands, saying, attitude. That's our buzzword for we can't control what happened. There's nothing we can do about that now. The only thing we control is what is our mindset coming out of this huddle, and it's got to be positive. You know, some people have asked me, well, you know, why didn't you react on that shot? When our guys came off the court saying attitude to each other, I had tears in my eyes on the court. I was like, these guys get it. We blew a 10-point lead. We gave up a three. It was the only way you could screw up was to give up a three. And they still said attitude, attitude. You learn that as a player because that's what you care about, basketball. But then they're smart, and they get to be 22 years old, and they realize, wait a minute, this isn't just basketball. This is life. I remember we were playing pit down in pit my sophomore year, and I had sharp pains in my shins. I didn't know at the time, but you guys were telling me, suck it up and just play. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm saying to myself, like, man, I'm in pain. I remember you got on me, like, and I think you could see it. And I just was saying to myself, like, man, I'm done. And I told Coach Hill, like, I want to leave. I want to leave. <laughs> 
But then I remember sitting in my room and I'm just saying to myself, like, it's something special about this place. Being in the pavilion, it's loud, it's crazy. You're <laughs> going back to your dorm and you're just like vibrating. Everything he's preaching is right because the film don't lie. He would tell us to play a certain way, tell us to share the ball, and we would win. We'd be selfish, bad attitude, wouldn't play together, we would lose. Like when we got really good, my junior year, you just start giving us ownership. Where it was basically like, we were running practice, and if we did something and we didn't do it right, then you were on us, but you gave us ownership. At the end of my sophomore year, my junior year, that's when I start feeling everything turn because it was more coming from the players than it was from him. Yeah, and that's what good teams do. What I love the most about coaching is the people. There's certain things, certain core values we want to defend, we want to rebound, we want to run, we want to execute. But how we do that is based on the people. What you do in life with other people is what's rewarding. What you do by yourself isn't that rewarding. We just won a championship, being like 10, 11 years old again, screaming, yelling, hugging each other. Define success for me. In general, success is getting the full potential of who you are out of yourself and those who are a part of your life. That, that's what it is for me. Some people, you know, success to them is they never had any money. I'm, I want to make as much money as I can. To me, it is really just becoming the best of, of what, I can be as a man, as a father, a husband, a coach, and hoping that that impacts people around me. How does being happy work its way into that? The journey, right, the journey of trying to continuously be the best you can be, enjoy that journey. We talk about the, the stonecutter tapping at the rock. He went tap at that rock 101 times. It breaks on the 101st tap, but it wasn't that tap that broke the rock. It was the 100 that came before. Just understanding in life, all the things that you go through, like losing that second round game last year got a lot of people upset. That's just part of our journey, man. Like, I, I got to take the hit. I got to take the criticism. It's not The criticism's not a bad thing. It's warranted. We, we lost. It's not going to kill me, but it's, it's, but it's going to make us stronger. So just enjoy, learning how to enjoy that and being happy about that. I just look around, look at your room, see the trophies. Something that sticks out to me is, it says beyond basketball, and our relationship is definitely beyond basketball. You have taught me so much on the court, but you have taught me even more off the court. You know, I met my wife here at Villanova. My kids love Villanova. The great decisions you've ever made. <laughs> Everybody around me loves Villanova because of you coming to Newark, sitting on that porch, talking to Aunt Ruth. And, <laughs> God bless Aunt Ruth. And I can't think of a a better place to start my journey on becoming a man. So I thank you for helping me do that. Well, we, we, you know I love you, man, and I appreciate everything you've done for us and continue to do for us at Villanova. Continue to give back and impact all of us. There's not a player I'm more proud of, and what makes me happy every day is just watching you live as a man. Not not just a player, but how you, you handle everything as a man. Thank you, Coach. Appreciate it. You got it, Dooski. They drew a line in the sand. Now here you stand outside that line with goals in mind. Dreams and destinies you will put here to find, manifest. They say you the worst when you know you're the best. So you invest, 
put in that work, even when it hurts. Their can'ts and their doubts turn into our will and our must. You put trust in your faith and your gut. The instincts you naturally feel against all lies. You tighten up even the playing field. Brick by brick, you build like the city. There's something in me, in you, that just won't let you stop. You know what's going in, even though they say you are an outside shot.